Good morning. Happy November to you. Kind of makes me sad that it's going to be dark like at 5 o'clock tonight. Daylight savings time in the fall bums me out. But I'm happy that we're here together today, so that's good. The extra hour of sleep is nice. We can all agree on that. My name is James. I'm the teaching pastor. Again, we're so glad you're here. I invite you to grab your Bible or open your Bible app. Let's meet up here in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. We're going to walk through verses 41 to 52 today. It's the passage that Gary read earlier. And if you like to study your Bible, Bible commentators and scholars will tell you, you want to really pay attention to things that are unique in God's Word. And this passage today, it is ripe with unique stuff. There's a lot going on in these verses. This is that account where we see Jesus going AWOL. He's absent without leave. He didn't ask permission or tell his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, that he was going to stay at the temple. This is unique because it's the only story we have in all the Bible of Jesus as a boy. This is 12-year-old Jesus here at the temple. And so we look at it, there's got to be something very important going on for Luke to include this as the only story we see of Jesus growing up. So kind of with that thought in mind, you know, why this account? What's going on here? I started reading and praying at the beginning of the week, and by the middle of the week, I realized there's lots of unique stuff in this passage. We're going to see Luke chapter 2, verse 49. This is pretty noteworthy. These are the first recorded spoken words of Jesus in the Bible. I guarantee he spoke before this, but, but this is the first that we see. Also, this passage, the last time we hear any mention of Christ's earthly father, Joseph, there's this kind of commonly held view that sometime between this account and before Jesus began his public ministry, Joseph passed away. This is our last look at Joseph. And finally, and I think most importantly, there's this weird tension in this text. Where you see a young Jesus Christ, you see his actions, where he deserts his family, stays behind at the temple, doesn't tell him. And we look at that, and at first glance, it appears to be wrong. Wow, that'd be unique, wouldn't it? We need to deal with that question. Did Jesus do something wrong in this passage? And the key to understanding that lies in our perspective. Because we're going to look and see Mary and Joseph's actions and attitudes. I mean, they rebuke him when they finally find him. So in their minds, for sure, Jesus messed up here. From their perspective, he was wrong. But then from Jesus' perspective, we're going to see and he's going to say, I wasn't wrong here. You guys were wrong here. Did you not understand that I have to be about my father's business? So this is a unique question. And we're going to have to really wrestle with this one because the answer we come up with there is going to determine whether we're interpreting this passage correctly. So there's a lot more going on than we might initially think. seems like the part of this story we always remember is Jesus going AWOL, you know? And, and we try and reconcile and we figure out, you know, was he left behind? by Mary and Joseph at the temple? Are they careless? Or, or maybe was Jesus so engrossed, you know, he was just captivated by the study, and so he didn't notice that everybody else had left. We try and view it through our lens, you know. In our lives, we probably all have a story where we lost somebody, even if it was only for a minute or two, you know. And that's scary. I understand that. I don't want to downplay that at all. It's happened to me a couple times. By the grace of God, it was resolved very quickly. So if that's happened to you, you know it can be traumatic. Now, I hope it isn't quite as traumatic as this encounter I want to show you in this video clip between Kevin McAllister's mom and Gus the Polka King in the scene from Home Alone. 
Let's watch this clip together and see where we're going with this. That's not the clip. Great passage, that's not it. I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad parent. You're not. You know, you're, you're beating yourself up there, you know. Come on, this happens. This thing happens, you know. You, gee, you, 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 you want to talk about bad parents? Look at, look at us. I mean, we're on the road 48, 49 weeks out of the year. We hardly see our families. Uh, you know, Joe over there, gosh, you know, he's, he forgets his kids' names half the time. Ziggy over there, he doesn't even, he's never even met his kid. Eddie. Let's just hope none of them write a book about him. Ed, tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? No. no. But I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. And we left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. All day. You know, we went back at night when, you know, when we came to our senses and... There he was. Apparently, he was there alone all day with a corpse. Now, he was okay, you know, after six, seven weeks. And I came <laughs> around and started talking again. Uh, but he's okay. You know, they get over it. Kids are resilient like that. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Well, you brought it up. I was just, you know, trying well, to cheer I'm you up. Sorry, I did. <laughs> Kids are resilient like that, you know? And it's supposed to make us laugh, but, but you know, it's a movie, it's fiction, but even from this, we can see that perspective matters, right? Because Gus did something wrong there. He left his kid at the funeral parlor. That was bad. From Kevin's mom's perspective, what she did was even worse. She left her son home alone. So do we read this text and we think, well, that's what happened there? Joseph and Mary got real busy packing up to head back, and they, and they just left Jesus there alone in the temple? Or do we think he was so engaged, he was so preoccupied, Jesus forgot to go home with his parents? We're going to see that's not the case. Let's do this thing that we can do together. Let's study this passage. We'll try to determine what God wants us to learn and apply in our lives. Start by reading this first section, verses 41 to 47 of Luke chapter 2. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When Jesus became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And they spent a day in travel. Look, pardon me. And, and they went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So every year, Joseph and Mary go up to Jerusalem. Now theoretically, Jewish men were required to attend three feasts in Jerusalem each year. They're supposed to attend Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But just practically, this Passover feast was the only one that was really strictly mandated. Over time, God's people became really dispersed around that region. And so for some people, it was a really long, difficult journey to come back to Jerusalem. And many people, honestly, they were very poor. And so they couldn't afford to come back three times for the feasts. 
So this became the one, Passover, that everybody attended. And so Joseph travels up to Jerusalem with his family to celebrate the Passover, and they travel kind of heavy. They're in this huge, big, long caravan made up of family and friends and acquaintances from Nazareth and probably even from some surrounding towns. And you wanted to travel this way back in the day. You wanted to have a bunch of people because, honestly, then you were safer. You were safer from bandits and robbers and animal attacks. There's this strength in numbers thing. So they go and they celebrate the Passover. And then Mary and Joseph and this whole caravan of folks, they set out to return to Nazareth. And unbeknownst to them, verse 43 says, Jesus stayed behind. So this is a little like Home Alone. No, not really. Caravan sets out and they travel for a full day. Now, most likely, they could have made it about 20 or 25 miles traveling this way. And the text says that they don't notice that Jesus isn't with them until they stop to make camp that night. Now, I want you to know, that's not unique in the story. I think we hear that sometimes and think, well, gosh, Mary and Joseph are bad parents. You know, they're, they're negligent. What are they doing? We need to pull up on the range just a little bit there. Because the way these caravans traveled was pretty common. Normally, they'd stretch for a real long way, and up in the front would be the women and, like, the small children. They'd walk with the moms. And so they'd kind of form a group in the front, and then in the middle would be the dads, all the the adult men. And they were kind of there intentionally to try and be able to see everything that was going on. And then way back at the back, if you have teenagers, you know where they are, they're way back in the back here with the animals. They kind of brought up the rear. And so, you know, if it was a big caravan, honestly, it was going to be hard to see everybody. And so it wouldn't have been weird for Joseph to be walking along here in the middle and not see Jesus and just think, well, okay, he's probably walking up with Mary. Or, you know, most likely he's back in the back hanging out with his buddies. That would have been normal. Mary would have thought the same thing. She wouldn't have had to see him to think that he was there. And then we also have to bring into account the fact that, honestly, this is Jesus, you know. And what has he done up to this point in time? He always does his homework. He always does his chores. Helps little old ladies across the street. There's nothing that he's done where Mary and Joseph are going, well, I bet that dude ditched. You know I mean? They know he's just got to be there somewhere. But they finally stop that night, and they make camp. He's not there. Now, I don't know if you've ever lost anybody, but, but this is a harrowing time. They search around frantically. They're asking everybody, their neighbors, their family. They can't find him. And every moment you're in that situation, it gets worse. You probably start to consider just the worst-case scenarios. And so eventually, you know, Mary's here going, he got abducted by bandits. And Joseph's saying, my son was eaten by a mountain lion. And, and, you know, they're just coming up with these bad, bad things, scary stuff. Because that's where we go. We understand that. And we, we live in a fallen world. Scary things happen. Mary and Joseph can't find their boy. So they're going to turn around and go back to Jerusalem, right? They're going to retrace their steps. And they can't travel in the dark. That's not safe. So they wait till first light. I doubt they sleep at all. They get back out on the road. They travel back up to Jerusalem. Can you imagine what that's like? Looking for signs of a scuffle or foul play or anything along the way. They're looking every, every mile they're traveling. The next day, finally, they arrive back at Jerusalem. And what do they do? They're retracing their steps like we would. So where do they go? They go to the temple. That's where they'd been. That's where they find their boy. Three days of hard traveling, anxious, 
frustrated, probably sick to their stomach, little or no sleep. There's Jesus just sitting in the temple, safe and secure as can be, sitting with the rabbis, sitting with the teachers, asking questions, engaged in this discussion. Now, this is neat to see. This is very much the rabbinical method of teaching. The boy Jesus is not teaching the teachers here. He has the posture of a learner. This is how the rabbis would do it. They would ask questions, and they would encourage their students to ask questions because you know this, I hope, as a teaching method. If somebody asks you a question and you can explain what's going on, that's that's proof that you understand the concept. And so we see later in his life, Jesus becomes a rabbi. He's a teacher, right? And he uses this method all the time. Someone comes up to Jesus, and they're earnestly seeking knowledge. Or they come up to Jesus, and they want to trap him in a question. And so they'll ask a question. What does he do? He goes, well, what's written in the Scripture? What do you think? Or he'll tell a parable. You know, he'll tell a story that has a specific application. And he'll get done, and he'll go, what do you think that interpretation is supposed to teach us? And here in this passage, I think this is so awesome, we actually get to observe Jesus growing. This is where he learns this rabbinical method of teaching. And then we see he's already grown in wisdom and in understanding because the answers he's providing to these questions, the questions he's asking were incredible. Luke uses this Greek word, exestomai, which means astonishment. It means to be amazed to the point of being a little fearful because you've seen something so miraculous It's like hard to comprehend. Witnesses to Jesus here in the temple would have done that. They would have seen this young boy, and he's blowing folks away, and they would have been, what? (laughs) Who is this 12-year-old boy who knows all this stuff? It would have been kind of freaking him out a little bit. And so that's the culmination of Joseph and Mary's frantic search for Jesus. They find him astonishing people in the temple. So what do they do? Look at verses 48 to 52 with me. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I, we've been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They didn't understand the statement which he'd made to them. And he went down with them, and they came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. It says his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And then Jesus kept growing, kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay, let's do something fun together. Let's see if we can put ourselves in this story. So guys, imagine for me you're Joseph. Ladies, imagine you're Mary. Do this with me. Wrap your head, if you can, around the idea your oldest child has been missing for three days. And you are tired, and you are worn out, and you've been worrying yourself sick looking for him. And now you finally find him. There he is in the temple. And the text says Joseph and Mary are astonished. It's a different Greek word than before. This one is ekpleso. That word really means they're dumbfounded. I mean, you're dumbfounded. You've traveled 25 miles. You had to stop. You traveled 25 miles back, and you go to the temple, and there's Jesus just where you left him. They were dumbfounded over this. Okay, you're still 
Joseph and Mary with me, right? What would your first thought be? Really, even beneath the thought. What would your first reaction be? Whew. I mean, it'd be relief, right? Wouldn't you be relieved? Because you've been gravely concerned that he was eaten by a mountain lion, and now you see Jesus right there. So you breathe that sigh of relief. But stick with me and be honest. What's your next thought? Because now you're angry, right? (laughs) What were you thinking? That's what Mary basically comes up and does there in verse 48. I'm sure for a second here, Mary forgets that Jesus is Jesus, you know. She's got other kids. They've messed up before. I'm sure she knows what she's doing here. She's probably done a little finger wagging before. It's got to be her first rebuke of Jesus, but I'm sure she's had some rebuke practice. And so she comes up to him, and she says, What have you done? You're driving us crazy. And Jesus responds with his first words ever that we see in the Scripture. And he says, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, I don't know about you, but this, not exactly similar, but somewhat. When I was 12 years old, I wandered away from my dad one time. We were on a family vacation, old childhood friend of his, and we are up in Wisconsin, and my dad was out with his buddy, and I was in a boat with my dad's buddy's oldest son. We were on this huge lake in Wisconsin. This kid wasn't 15, 16 years old. And so there I was, and we were supposed to check back in, you know, at a certain time. But we didn't check back in. And I distinctly remember telling this old boy, we need to check back in. But we didn't do it. So, so we're gone, right? When we finally came back later, just imagine if you can, when, when my furious father came up and roared to me, what were you thinking? Imagine I'd asked, just like Jesus, why is it you were looking for me, Father? I would have got whipped, I'm telling you right now. Right? We, we can't say that. This is the one time in the Bible where you don't want to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we get that. You can't do it here, and this is crucial. The reason we can't be like Jesus here is the entire point of the story. He responds this way because he and he alone is fully God and fully man. Jesus is God incarnate in this 12-year-old boy. And we can't do that. We, We can't say, why is it you were looking for me? It doesn't work for us. That's unique. From Mary's perspective, she doesn't get it. Jesus messed up here. He was wrong. So let's look carefully at Jesus' response because I don't don't believe Jesus is trying to get whipped here. I don't believe he's trying to backtalk at all. It's just that his perspective is different. And I believe, actually, the way that he phrases his response is because of the way Mary phrased her rebuke. Because she said, your father and I, and she's talking about Joseph, we were worried. And so Jesus comes back and he says, why would you have to look for me? You should know that I'm here in, what does he say, my father's house. I'm here in the temple. I'm your son here on this earth, but you've got to understand, I'm God's son first. And the personal intimacy of that phrase that he uses there in verse 49, my father's house. That's unprecedented. That's unique. This way that Jesus talks about God 
as his father, this is the thing that later in his life is going to get him accused of blasphemy. So Jesus indicates there in verse 49 to Mary, I had to be here. Luke uses this Greek infinitive word day. It means it's a necessity. It means I must. Jesus must be in his father's house. That's why he stayed behind at the temple. Now, for us, there's no big resolution to this discussion. Jesus explains so clearly, we hope, he's fully God, he's fully man. So Joseph is his adopted father, but God is his heavenly father, and so he must be in his heavenly father's house. And they don't get it. Verse 50 says, Mary and Joseph don't understand what Jesus is trying to tell them, but look at what happens next. They all go home. And I love this text. It says Jesus continued in subjection to Joseph and Mary. They were his parents on earth. Now, at this point in time, that must have been weird for Jesus, right? He'd gotten to spend some time in Jerusalem. He was at his father's house. He got to talk theology with the experts of the day. And now, he's going to go back home to Nazareth and do some more chores learn how to be a carpenter. But at the end of verse 51, it says Mary treasured all these things in her heart. That's the second time Luke has used that phrase, and so I think it's worth asking. We've got to imagine ourselves again. Can we put ourselves in that spot and wonder what it must have been like to raise Jesus? We're going to have a prayer meeting tonight, parents of prodigals. I'll be praying for the burden that these parents share from home. But they have this burden because their children are some degree of wayward. So we think about prodigal children, and then I think we think, well, you know, if our children have professed faith in Christ, if they haven't strayed away, maybe there are folks who think, well, raising those kids must be easy. Let me just correct that notion right now. We've got to understand that. Raising kids is difficult always, no matter what the circumstances. Now, it's glorious, rewarding, but it's difficult. But then I think for some reason we all kind of rally around this notion of, but I bet it would have been nice to be Jesus' parents. Man, they had it made. And you know, the more I studied this passage this week, the more I've been thinking about this account, the more I just can't imagine that's totally true. I mean, I believe that raising Jesus must have been incredibly rewarding but also incredibly confusing at the same time. I think it might have been like trying to put together a puzzle without the box. You need the picture on the box to put the puzzle together, don't you? I mean, what if you just came up and there on the table were hundreds or thousands of pieces of this puzzle and you have no clue what it's supposed to make? I can almost picture Mary and Joseph laying in bed at night and asking each other, Who is this unique son of ours? I can't see the picture. They'd get pieces every now and again, for sure. Jesus was growing in wisdom and grace. The picture would start to take shape. But after this week, i got to be honest, I don't think until he finished his work, I don't think until he accomplished his father's business on the cross that Mary knew what the picture on the box was. 
This passage closes by saying, you know, after he went AWOL, he wasn't really AWOL, Jesus returned. And he continued in subjection. And he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's it. So what does all that mean? Why does Luke include this account with the 12-year-old Jesus at the temple? Well, here's where we're studying together. We've made all these observations, so we move to the next step. We want to figure out the interpretation of this passage. And so to do that, we've got to ask some more questions, to ask some interpretation questions. And I've got to remind you, the idea isn't to read it and go, what does that passage mean? It's not really the right question. We've got to ask, what does this passage mean to the people it was written to? At the time and place it was written. That's the correct interpretation. Once we know that, then we can pick that up and take it and apply it in our lives. That's God's desire for us. That's why he gives us the Bible. So we can do that. We can apply the truth and the teaching. And I think this passage is a little tricky when we first read it. Because at first glance, there looks like there might be several interpretive options available. But let's consider them, and then I believe we're going to see really only one possible interpretation emerges. So what are some of the options? We could say, you know, hey, this is just a story that happened in the life of Jesus. This this is a cute story. It's an anecdote. Everybody's had something like this. They lost somebody. You know, and you you hope they end cute so you can share that story. I was in the grocery store, and I had a little three-year-old toddler, and and they were right there, and I turned around, and they were gone. And oh my gosh, I got frantic, and I looked everywhere, and I ran up to the front, and I got the manager, and they called the Code Adam thing, and then somebody found my boy, and he was inside the donut case covered in glaze, just rubbing his belly. I mean, that's a cute story, right? But but that's, that's not it. I don't think this is just a cute story about Jesus. That option doesn't work because this is the only account we get in the Bible of Jesus as a child. There's way too many things any of the gospel writers could have included to imagine that something trivial would make the cut. I don't think that's it. So what are the other options? We'd say this is some kind of picture of Jesus just as an absent-minded Messiah. Boy, that Jesus, he could really get locked in on something. He was so engrossed in that teaching that he didn't notice the caravan left town. See, but that doesn't really work either, does it? Because even if we would pretend that that happened at the end of that first day, when everybody went home and they shut off the lights in the temple, we don't see Jesus going, oh, no, I missed my ride. What happened, you know? He didn't go looking for Mary and Joseph. It wasn't a slip-up on Jesus' part. So that option doesn't work. Now, I don't even know that we need to play with this one, but we could say, well, I think Jesus was wrong here. He shouldn't have stayed behind. Or he should have at the very least told his parents what he was doing. Now, here's the deal. We have to correlate our interpretations with the entirety of God's Word. And so let's, let's all get together on the fact that Jesus is God. He never sinned. So we can throw this option out pretty quickly. Jesus didn't miss the mark by staying behind here at the temple. So what else? We could try and pin this on Mary and Joseph. We could say, yeah, they're bad parents. They're negligent. They should have noticed that Jesus wasn't in the caravan. They must be clueless. And again, I can cut them a lot of slack for not paying that much attention. He's Jesus. He'd never done anything to make them think he was going to be trouble. But even if we would want to go with this option... It doesn't explain verse 43, which tells us that Jesus intentionally stayed behind. So none of those options work. 
None of those options hold water. So what is it then? What's the correct interpretation? And I think the only thing we can come up to is that Jesus was 100% right in what he did in staying behind at the temple. But it's a two-parter. If he was 100% right, then that means that Joseph and Mary were wrong to rebuke him. Parents, how does that one sit with us? I mean, I think we can be objective, right? If we follow Christ, we can proclaim that first part pretty easily. Christ is God. He's without sin. So, of course, he was right. But that second part about the parents being wrong for rebuking him, that's harder to take, isn't it? But stick with me, and let's finish this out. Let's keep working on this outline in your bulletin because we're moving towards a purpose, an application for us today. And I think we're all going to arrive at the same place. I believe this is intentionally in here. Luke includes it because Jesus was being super focused, super intentional here. And I think, honestly, just like Jesus' parents, we're going to have a tough time grasping everything that's going on in this passage. I mean, if we just think about Jesus growing and maturing, it's so much easier to think about him growing physically in stature. It's really even easier to think about him growing in God's grace and in favor than it is to think about him growing in wisdom while he's on this earth. But we already know from the passage that's what he'd been doing. We ended last week with a summary that said from the age of six weeks up to 12 years, he'd been growing in wisdom. And now we see him staying behind in Jerusalem, staying at the temple so that he could grow even more in a way that I can't totally grasp that he could learn even more about himself. He had the posture of a learner. And I'm thinking he stayed behind at the temple because it was Passover. And he needed to learn specific things about the Passover, about how it applied to him, what that celebration was all about. These, these are things that academically and objectively he couldn't learn from Mary and Joseph. To get this answer, to be about his father's business, he had to be in his father's house. That was how he was going to grow. And then on the flip side of this, if we'll pull back just a little bit and look kind of at the wider angle lens, it becomes easy to see why he'd have to learn this lesson from somebody other than Mary and Joseph. If he's going to be about his father's business, he had to learn about that from his heavenly father. Because God's business is reconciling people to himself. God's business is taking what's wrong and making it right. And the way he accomplishes that His plan all along has been sending his son to the cross to take our place. God sacrificed his son. Now, we can do a pretty good job of talking about sacrifice. We we would probably even say we're willing to sacrifice ourselves, but what if somebody came to you and said, hey, are you willing to sacrifice your child? How does that conversation play out? Think about this. Jesus goes to Mary and he said, okay, mom, here's the deal. All this, my whole life, it's about me preparing to go to the cross in order to make the way for people to be reconciled to God. Would she be on board? Or would she say, excuse me, you're going where? Oh, no, the cross? Oh, no, no, little mister, no. That's not going to happen. Would any mother be on board for this? Let's be honest. We, We struggle with our kids taking dangerous jobs 
We struggle with our kids going into the military. Kind of well-meaning, loving parents, they don't want their kids to go to the mission field. Why? Because it's dangerous. And we're parents. We want to protect our children, not sacrifice them. We don't make decisions like God. We can't. His ways are higher than our ways. All this is intentional here in Luke chapter 2. Because from his seat there at the temple, while he's learning and growing, Jesus can see 21 years into the future and know that his father's business is going to be about conquering sin and death on the cross. And he knows if he would go to ask his folks, hey, can I stay behind at the temple and learn more about how I'm going to go to the cross? If he'd tell Mary that's what he was here on this earth to do, she'd try to talk him out of it. And Jesus, Jesus didn't need to ask permission to stay at the temple, right? He didn't need it. All authority on heaven and earth is his because he's fully God and fully man. That's the only interpretation that we can arrive at that can explain how he acted the way he did, how he said something that would have gotten any one of us in trouble with our parents and not be wrong for saying it. Do we see that? Start putting a bow on this. There's a lot of purpose. I think there's clear purpose in Luke including this account in his gospel. And I think, number one, for sure, it's to affirm both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus alone is fully God and fully man. But then I think it's, it's also to remind us that Jesus had to grow in wisdom. He had to increase. Jesus didn't show up on earth and immediately begin his public ministry, right? Have we ever stopped to ask why this happened this way? Because we see here that between six weeks and 12 years, he grows. This event in Luke 2 happens after 12 years of growth. When he goes back home to Nazareth, it's another 18 years of growth before he's even ready to go into his father's business. As hard as it is for us to understand this, God incarnate needed to grow and mature and learn on this earth in preparation for this ministry. Clear purpose here. Also, I think, in helping us understand the relationship between sovereignty and authority. Jesus is God, so he's sovereign. I think we're all pretty good on that. And so the idea is that also means that Jesus has ultimate authority. So in our story, that tension there, even though Joseph and Mary have this parental authority, Jesus, their son, being God, far surpasses their authority. It's kind of a weird circular thing here. Because when Mary goes to try and rebuke Jesus, the ability she has to rebuke him came from him. told you this was a unique passage. And I don't want to be too hard on Mary and Joseph for not getting what Jesus was saying. Because I think if we're honest, we'd all say, man, I've responded that same way. Far too often, I've responded to God's sovereignty in the same way that Mary did when she tried to rebuke Jesus. Right? Because when God allows trials in our lives, what do we do? We go, thank you, God. It's great joy. Appreciate that trial. Or something that comes along and causes us agony and pain, do we go to God and go, what are you doing, God? 
What are you thinking? We get frustrated. We want God to explain what he's doing. And so the reason that Joseph and Mary were wrong to rebuke Jesus in this passage is that they just forgot. And we forget too. They forgot as people that their authority was vastly outranked by this 12-year-old boy that God had given them to raise, that he'd placed under their care because he's 100% God as well as being 100% man. That's why Jesus says what he says. That's why he had to remind them he's first and foremost God's son, and then he's their son. So his, his ultimate obedience had to be to his heavenly father. There's tons of purpose in this passage. It's really easier to see now why Luke includes this account. And so if we look at the purpose, it's got to lead us to application. And so let's close our time by talking about just a couple of the applications out of this passage, just two that we'll look at. And the first has to deal with distinguishing between things that are unique to Jesus Christ as God incarnate, where we won't be able to follow his example. And then those things where Jesus is the perfect example for us because he's God. And and I mean, this is the whole idea. This is why the WWJD bracelets were a big hit. In most things, I want to do what Jesus would do. But in this intentional account of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, we, we can't follow his example because he alone is fully God and fully man. You hear me on this, young people in the room, especially my young people over here? You can't do what Jesus did here. If you think your parents are wrong, if you think I'm wrong about something, you can't act contrary to the instructions. Even if it's just a preference issue for me, you can't do it as long as those instructions are not asking you to disobey God. This works across the board. If we don't agree with what our political leaders are doing, As long as they're not asking us to disobey God, we're supposed to obey. If we think we're about 18 times smarter than our boss at work, doesn't mean we get to throw out the instruction unless they're asking us to disobey God. That's the application. On this earth, we're supposed to be subject to authority. And then we're supposed to understand, if we're Christ followers, our ultimate authority always has got to be God. So if we see things in conflict between our earthly authority and God, we've got to figure out God is first. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 instructs us this way. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. As earthly children, God has placed us under parental authority, and we're supposed to obey. So we can't say things like, well, my parents want me to keep this curfew, but that's so goofy, I'm just going to disobey it. No, you can't do it, even though that's just their preference. God has put you in that relationship. You're supposed to obey. Now, if your parents say, hey, I want you to go rob a bank for me, yeah, you can disobey that one. Throw that one out. That one's not from the Lord. That, it's that easy, really. Jesus is teaching us about ultimate authority in this passage. If you're at work and your boss tells you to do something pointless, goofy, but not illegal, you don't get to throw it out just because it's pointless. Let's be honest. If your boss asks you to do pointless things, he won't be your boss for that long, so that's good. We've got to apply this lesson. 
unless the instruction causes you to sin, we're supposed to obey our authorities. And here's the teaching from this, if you didn't catch it. If all we needed to have a mandate to disobey was to think that in some way we're superior to our authority, then why would Jesus have returned to Nazareth and continued to be in subjection to his earthly parents? But he did. And that's why we wear the WWJD bracelet. Most of the time we ask, what would Jesus do? And we can do it unless it's when he's God incarnate, fully God and fully man, and we can't do that. Do me this favor this week. We don't have time to walk through this today. But especially in light of the elections coming up, read Romans chapter 13 on your own this week. Great passage about authority that God places in our lives. And remember, we're supposed to obey unless they ask us to disobey God, unless they ask us to sin. And then, if they do ask us to disobey, the Bible still has us covered. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Good memory verse. We must obey God rather than men. And finally, one last huge, critical application point. I'm going to introduce the Lord's Supper as we talk about this. Because observing communion today is going to be super fitting as we view this last application challenge. We've talked through this passage now, and we understand it's not Jesus going AWOL, right? It's just Jesus doing something that only he can do. As God alone, he can do it. That's what we see here. But for us to understand this passage, interpret it, and apply it, we've got to be able to answer this question, the most important question we'll ever answer for ourselves. Who is Jesus Christ? For us to understand that, for us to be able to say, this unique person, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's fully God and He's fully man. Because if our perspective is that He possesses that full deity and that full humanity, then everything in this passage makes sense. But if we don't arrive there, then we're left with way too many options on how we're supposed to interpret and apply this text. But if we ask and answer that question, if we can grasp who Jesus is, why he came to this earth, to be about his Father's business of reconciling sinful people to a holy God, well, then it's easy to see why he had to be in his Father's house, why he had to learn and grow, and why he responded to his earthly parents in the way that he did. And so when we take the bread and the cup today, that's what we're going to remember, is that it was God's plan to provide his son to be the way and the truth and the life, to be the only path to salvation and reconciliation. So we're going to take communion, and we'll have some response time. And Scripture instructs us we're supposed to examine our hearts. And while we're doing that, ask that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? And when you answer that, then we can confess our sins, whether it's for the first time or what feels like far too many times. We can confess and we can commune with the God who loves us so much that he sent his son. Right? He sacrificed his son. He made that sacrifice, and we can try to wrap our minds around that 
And when we grasp it, we can be with God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to have some music, and you'll have that time to respond. And then when you're ready, come and take the communion elements. They're on the tables all around the room. And please know, I mean, this is the Lord's Supper. It's not our supper. If you're a Christ follower, this is for you to come. Remember the sacrifice that God made in sending his son. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Daddy, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the intentionality of Christ's words, those first words we see recorded where he gently rebukes his mom, I think, for not understanding that he had to be about your business because he's fully God, he's fully man. That's so hard for us to grasp. We're so finite and you are so infinite and good and holy. God, help us to draw closer and closer to you. Help us to wrestle with that answer. Do we really understand who Jesus is? Thank you for the testimonies from the baptism earlier. These guys who did wrestle with that answer and understood that until they can come up with, I'm in a relationship with the God of the universe by grace and through faith in Jesus, I don't understand him. God, we want to understand you. I pray if there's folks here who don't know you, you'd today reveal yourself to them. You'd today draw them to yourself. God, as we take the bread and the cup, help us to remember your incredible sacrifice, your great love for us. God, we love you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.